Harvard Divinity School. The Climate of Compassion for All Beings. October 18, 2021.
Good evening, and thank you for joining us tonight for another weather report, the climate of compassion for all beings with the venerable Buddhist scholar, Janet Gyatso, and our respondent, theologian, Stephanie Paulsell, both beloved professors at the Harvard Divinity School. And Brian Kerbis of Theosophy has graced us once again with a tea ceremony to slow our minds and open our hearts to this moment in shadow and light. I'm Terry Tempest Williams, and on behalf of the Harvard Divinity School, the Center for the Study of World Religions, Religion and Public Life, and the Planetary Health Alliance, in partnership with the Constellation Project, we welcome you to another conversation of bearing witness to this climate of now. And the act of bearing witness is what binds these conversations together. Personal accounts of what it means to be awake, alive, and engaged in the midst of a capricious climate, recognizing that each of us holds an essential piece, a tessera, to this mosaic of deep cultural changes with the gifts that are ours. We began with fire in the American West, a burning testament to change and the politics of both Northern and Southern California in climate chaos, heightened by poor forest management and the economic and political divides in the state. It created a perfect firestorm in the midst of drought and extreme temperatures. Filmmaker Lucy Walker bore witness to the complexity of climate through her documentary, Art Form. We then focused on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska, the melting ice thawing the permafrost, rising seas eroding cliffs where Gwich'in fire camps collapsed into the waters, destabilizing native communities, villages, and yet with ongoing threats to these villages, both human and wild communities. Due to the pressures of fossil fuel development, the Gwich'in and the Caribou still are intrinsically bound as one. Remember indigenous leader Bernadette Dementiev embodied grace through grief and strength as she bore witness to the truth of living a ground zero of climate chaos. And our last weather report looked at the intersectionality of racial and environmental justice through individual actions born out of a commitment to social change on a changing planet. Morgan Curtis has committed 100% of her inherited wealth to supporting native and black led organizations and their land projects. And Bronte Velez illustrated the power of gesture as they melt guns into shovels that can plant trees, transforming the story of racial violence into peaceful acts through the prophetic voice of community. And on Friday, October 8th, approaching a sanctioned Indigenous Day, President Biden and Secretary Holland restored Bears Ears National Monument. I was fortunate enough to be home in Utah and experience the ceremonial circle of gratitude with Native people and non-Native people alike in community on top of Muley Point with an eye toward the long view. It felt like the beginning of sincere reparations from the United States government. And you'll remember Bears Ears as Eric Deshini shared with us regarding sacred land protection is always about healing. 
These are kaleidoscopic visions. With each turn of the wrist, we see another possibility of engagement through witness and daring deeds. Bearing witness is not a passive act, but an act of conscience and consequence. To bear witness is to return with the story. Story is the umbilical cord that binds the past, present, and future. It keeps things known. And those of us who hear that story become accountable for that knowledge which is shared. It becomes the conscience of the community. Tonight's witness and storyteller is Janet Giazzo. She is the Hershey Professor of Buddhist Studies and Associate Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs at the Harvard Divinity School. Giazzo was president of the International Association of Tibetan Studies and in 2018 was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Her concentration as a Buddhist scholar is on Tibetan and South Asian cultural and intellectual histories from the blending of religion and science in Tibetan medicine to sex and gender in Buddhist monasticism to visionary revelations in Buddhism. Professor Gyatso's landmark books, and I've been fortunate to read many of them, Being Human in a Buddhist World, an Intellectual History of Medicine in Early Modern Tibet, Women of Tibet, Apparitions of the Self, the Secret Autobiographies of a Tibetan Visionary, and In the Mirror of Memory, Reflections on Mindfulness and Remembrance in Indian Tibetan Buddhism. Her current writings focused on the phenomenology of living well with animals and related ethical issues and practices which she will be sharing with us tonight. Personally, I can tell you we now have three cats due to Janet's passionate advocacy, advocacy on behalf of related um, on behalf of a deeper relationship to animals. She reminded me that I had abandoned my feline self. And as one of her students, Maisie Luo, has said today, her classes and her teaching offer wisdoms that are transformative, practical and timely in this present world. She's also encouraged me and many of my peers to creatively imagine possibilities with our unique talents that contribute to a more loving and caring world. Maisie brings her dog to class. Janet, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. That was such a wonderful and beautiful um, introduction. And thank you, especially for citing our beloved coast. Uh, we're both advising Maisie Lowe, so she's a wonderful student. And I love that you let Norbu into your class that you're having outside. So what's the weather report where, where you are tonight? Well. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank you, Terry. It's so wonderful to be. I'm very honored to be part of this whole conversation. And just to say it's been an honor to become your friend and to get to know you. And you are a great inspiration and putting together something amazing here. And I feel um, very honored to have been asked to, to be part of it. So thank you so much for asking me. And um, the weather report from what I'm talking about is not very good, actually. It's a very, very, very uh, difficult situation, the plight of animals on our planet today uh, is very bad and getting worse. So it's not in a good place. And how do you live with that? Very sadly and very... Um, uh, nonetheless, one, you know, has to do whatever one can, and it's been 
suddenly a kind of calling to me to actually address the issue. It's something I've cared about my whole life, but it's not, animals are not my field of study. But uh, recently I felt maybe I can contribute something to what's happening now as a way of trying to address the situation and to find some rays of hope or maybe find some ways forward. You know, we just have to keep working and trying as long as we can. So, but it's very hard, very hard to think about. You know, I'm interested as a Buddhist scholar that you are, you know, if you might share a generosity with us of how your path in Buddhism and practice in meditation has brought you to this new place of passion, which is about animal sentience and trying to lessen their suffering. I think it would be helpful for us to think about how your path as a Buddhist and a professor of Buddhist studies has brought you to this place, even in a place of not reconciliation, but able to embrace the grief of what you were finding as you just articulated? I mean, I thank you, Terry, so much for asking these questions. And um, I'll, I'll say that for myself in my life, ever since I was a very small child, I've always loved animals very deeply. I just have a huge love of all animals. Yes, especially cats, but actually every animal. And I grew up in a Jewish family in Philadelphia and in a in a animal loving family, you know, uh, when I came to Buddhism, which was in my college years or a little bit before that in high school, um, I was extremely captivated by Buddhism and I have felt, and I still feel, you know, Buddhism has a hugely deep, you know, truth to it that I really transformed me in many different kinds of ways. Um, And, I actually had the fortune um, when I was, and and the luck in when I was at Boston University as an undergraduate of meeting some Tibetan Buddhist teachers for the first time. And I was actually um, on a path to do something in mathematics or something like that. And I completely changed my field to Buddhist studies and I started studying Tibetan. And I, in particular, I I went on to University of California um, and was living out in California for a long time. And, had the great fortune to meet some truly amazing and wonderful teachers from the old world and who had come over as old people, mostly men, but some women as well, uh, who are of that generation who were just extraordinary human beings. And I was completely overwhelmed and blown away by many aspects of them. But one of the things I did connect with them in a very central um, idea in Buddhism is uh, compassion for all sentient beings. You know, it's a basic vision of, first of all, wanting to take in the, you know, look at with clear eyes, the the truth of life is filled with suffering for all of us. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's a fundamental Buddhist teaching. And, and for animals in particular, there's a huge amount of compassion. And I, of course, immediately resonated with that. Um, and, um, I, I'll just one little story is when I was in Nepal for the first time and I visited a place in Kathmandu where it's an old and amazing, beautiful temple, which is a temple to the Bodhisattva Tara, <coughs> uh, the Bodhisattva of compassion. 
I was going to show a picture of in a moment, but it's a place that's overlaid with many religious traditions. And there also was another religious group there making a live sacrifice of animals to this goddess, which is completely anathema to Buddhist kind of teaching you to never live sacrifice. And I just felt like I was going to collapse when I noticed what was happening was there's a long line of people carrying these little bunnies and goats and chickens and rabbits. And they were all like sacrificing them to the, and then putting their blood on the statue and like having to hold onto a fence. And this teacher, this monk who was with us, who I was fortunate uh, to, to have there, you know, I just looked at his eyes, like, what do you do if this is happening? You know, and he just, he didn't blink an eye, you know, he just stared at me back and I just had to take in the juxtaposition of this incredible, beautiful place <coughs> and these deities and the sadness and practice of what was happening. So that really influenced um, me very deeply. So one second. But you know, I've been working in Buddhist studies my whole life and I've been teaching Buddhism just in general, but just recently I'm getting old and I sort of want to do, I, I realize this is something I'd like to write on animals, which I've never done. And, um, and maybe I can contribute something. And so I just feel like maybe this will be of value. And if it is, it's an offering, you know, if I can do anything. You know, just in our conversations, what you are laying forth, um, I think is so powerful. And I'm wondering, you know, I was going back and looking at Mary Midgley, a British philosopher in her landmark book, um, Animals and Why They Matter. And she says the ultimate act of anthropocentrism is to assume that animals don't feel, that they don't have joy, grief, communications. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about human exceptionalism and its effect on animals. And also I'm interested, Janet, you know, is there a hierarchy in Buddhism and where do animals fall in that hierarchy? And how is it that, that you're breaking set with tradition? That's true. Um, so that, you know, anthropocentrism or the human hierarchy or human exceptionalism I think is part of many religions in the world. And it is true, technically speaking, in Buddhist doctrine, it's far superior to be born as a human than an animal. And that humans, I mean, that animals are not able of attaining Buddhahood basically in their life as an animal. I mean, there are some story literature about that, but generally the idea, you need to be a human being. And, um, and, and so there is a sense that if you have good karma, you'll be born as a human being. To be born as an animal is bad kar karma in general. And yet, um, it's, it's a very complicated picture to put together Buddhist views on animals. The other side of it is that Buddhists have enormous compassion for all sentient beings without exception. And in some ways, you know, you mentioned Mary Midgley. If you think of Peter Singer and his whole idea about, you know, suffering, I mean, Buddhists would completely agree that there's no difference in the suffering between, you know, a little bug and a human being when it comes to pain and suffering. 
And, and so the compassion that one feels and the sadness and the sorrow and the desire to help them, this is a very important part of compassion, um, is very, very strong. So there's a, it's a strange balance. But historically in the world, I definitely believe that not only, you know, in Buddhist countries and in, in human history, I think in general, humans have taken the, the kind of, you know, um, you know, presupposition that they can just simply um, make use of animals and uh, and hunt them freely, and use them as you know laborers, and you know um, abuse them in all kinds of ways um, is partially out of the thought that well humans are more important, and you know, and and then uh, uh, many philosophers in the West, in particular, just amazingly you know, have actually argued, including Descartes, that animals are like machines and they don't have feelings at all and they don't feel anything and therefore it's okay. And so um, those issues are still very strong. I mean, today we're in a, a, a time of what's being called post-humanism, which is a recognition that this human centrism and the whole way that we privilege um, humans as being superior has really, you know, doesn't seem to be doing very well as a steward of this planet. And we really have gone down a wrong path and we and we really need to put ourselves back into balance. Uh, and one of them is, of course, uh, our relationship with animals. But I feel that the human superiority over animals is so ingrained in us that even people like myself who feel very strongly about this very hard to change a habit because it's very, I think, very, very deeply and profoundly assumed uh, as a privilege that humans can take, the, the prerogative. Um, that's the word I was well, looking I think it's so ironic because we are animals. We are among them. And the fact that, as you say with Descartes and the Enlightenment, the fact that we severed that knowledge of the interconnectedness, I, I think... Um, is such hubris. It is hubris. It is hubris. It's complicated. And as I say, so in Buddhism, you see it as well. You know, it's not the case that the category of human and animal was invented by the Enlightenment West. Human versus animal is a very well-known category. I mean, as the example in Buddhism, it has a two. All the an other animals and the humans. And the humans are this and all the other animals are that. Um, and we're only seeing them through our lens. So we don't know what dolphin communication is or elephants are or well, cats, as you know. Well, that's the question. So that's one of the things that I'm trying to raise. First of all, I call that into question and I'm not sure. I personally, so I, I'm taking a lot of Buddhism into this project, but one part of the Buddhism I'm not taking is I don't necessarily buy that animals are inferior morally than humans. I really don't. And whatever my notion of enlightenment is, I'm not 100% sure it's animals are don't have access to that. So, um, yeah, so that's part of what this is. But Terry, when you say that we don't know what a dolphin is feeling because we're human, that's what I'm challenging. I don't think that we are, that's a kind of speciesism to think that we are so bounded by our human framework that we can't think outside of it. And I think that's simply wrong that we can we have lots of access, not 100%. So it's not a question of no access versus 100%. We have, nonetheless, in the middle, we have a lot of access. We have a lot in common. 
with. I would love for basil. one day. To, what? I would love for one day to smell like a dog, you know, or I would like for one day to you see do it. the view of a dragonfly. I mean, that's, I'm talking about the different umvelts, but I appreciate what you're saying. You know, what's given oh. you evidence that, <laughs> that you can perceive um, what your cats are experiencing, <laughs> for example? Well, because the communication works, for one thing. You know, we communicate with each other quite well. We understand each other quite well. Not perfectly, of course. And often, as you well know, cats refuse to, they do understand what you're saying, but they just choose to ignore you because they don't want to do that. But, you know, so I understand, but I generally, I know what they're asking me and they know what I'm telling them and they know all kinds of things and, and we know that it works. Um, and also the joy that we feel. So how are we doing for time? I, you know, it's Terry and I could speak for 20 hours. I know. Um, you have two clips that are wonderful. I think our audience would love to see them. Okay. So yeah. So two clips, which um, demonstrate the sort of thing that um, I'm trying to build off of. So coming out of this Buddhist perspective and compassion and trying to cultivate our awareness and our appreciation of animals as a, um, at least that's a starting point out of which we may build then an ethics of care for them and it might even mean changing our behavior. But at the beginning and what we need to do, not necessarily the beginning, but at the bottom of it is we need to just increase more and more our love of animals and our ability in fact to communicate with them and to hear what they're saying and to understand them. You know, again, not perfectly, but that doesn't mean not at all. So anyway, here's a first video um, which is of just to, uh, first of all, the, the bottom line for me, which is where I'm coming from, is how much I love animals and how much joy I get from them. And all of us who, no, 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 not this one, <laughs> the other one, the, the YouTube one. Um, uh, how, much, how much pleasure we share. So it's part of a, a um, virtue of being able to overlap in our subjectivities and to feel what they're feeling and to be close with them and to be with them. So this is a video which is available online and you can see this from many parts of the world, don't start it yet, um, in which um, cows, you know, who are kept in barns over the winter in cold places um, will then be, you know, let out into the pasture in the early spring. And uh, this is something that happens in North America, it happens in Northern Europe, and I'm sure in other parts of the world as well. And here you see a bunch of pe local people, um, this is some farm in the Midwest in the United States, who know about this event, the first time that the cows are let out each year to go outside and be in the pasture. And lots of people come to this just out of knowing what it's gonna be like, which is mainly the pleasure and the joy of seeing how the cows react when they first realize that they've been let outside and they're in the pasture and, and seeing, basically seeing the joy that they are experiencing and then noticing how much we as viewers, so the people who are there and we as watching this, how pleasurable it is just to see these cows which who are basically celebrating. Okay, we can play this. Listen. Here they come. Here they come. <laughs> I 
Look at them. They're like jumping in the air. They're all doing it one by one. They're literally jumping in the air with, they're celebrating. They are celebrating. And they, each one, as they realize this, and anyway, they watch this. Here's this baby cow <laughs> and his mother. <laughs> Look at it, the way it's prancing with his tail. He looks like a dog. Oh, okay, we can stop this now. We can stop. <laughs> uh, Love that. Yeah. And you can hear the people who are there squealing and laughing with joy. And just to question, why do we take so much pleasure in watching that? I think we feel the joy with the cow. We can identify it. We have some sense of what is feeling and it shows how much we love them. And then also how much they themselves are able to enjoy. Okay. And here's my second video, which is something that I'm just very much of an apprentice to use Alexis Gum's wonderful language. I'm an apprentice to my cats. And even though I've had my cats for a very long time, I'm still learning from them. But I noticed that this cat will gesture to me as a way of telling me to follow him. And he also does it to our other cat. So it's not a cat human thing. He does it to our cat. But one day he did it to me. So I videotaped him. He was just across the street. He jumps on the car of a neighbor across the street. And you'll see him four times. He gestures with his head in which he's telling me to follow him. And he's trying to lead me with the gesture of his head forward. So you'll see it four times. Okay. Here he goes. Not yet. <laughs> there he goes. One, two. Three. <laughs> Here he goes. Four. <laughs> the silly cat thought that I could jump on the car with him, you know, and just like be with him, which of course I was not able to do. Okay, we can stop this as well. Um, Those are so wonderful. And I see your point. You know, <laughs> that yes, we can see through our own lens, you know, what they are communicating. I'm wondering, Janet, given your practices in Buddhism, both theoretically and personally, what practices are you developing to enhance um, and deepen our relationships with other species, with other animals? Well, so I am drawing on Buddhism a lot for practices of meditation. So meditation is an amazing quote unquote technology whereby we can shift our perception and, and work with our attention and work with our understanding and our interpretation to actually change the way that we experience things intentionally, um, but also based on watching what's around us. And so a basic practice is just simply paying more attention, watching, being with animals, being aware of them, whether you have a pet or whether you go out into the countryside or whether you're looking at birds and squirrels outside your house or whether you're living in the jungle or wherever. And also in our imagination to be thinking about them. And also, as you can see, even on the internet, like there's amazing resources of animals, but simply spending time being with them and, um, and cultivating more of an awareness, just simply not forgetting about them, I feel is, is a number one practice. One of the things that I've learned from you in our conversations is the idea, the word of aleatory, of creating an aleatory relationship with animals. Can you define that and talk about that? I'm 
yeah, uh, thank you for prompting me. Um, um, that's another, so the word aleatory means sort of kind of by chance. Um, and it connects to a Buddhist concept also of interdependent origination. So what this is about, it, just to back up for a moment, my project is both to enhance our appreciation of animals so we see them more and we know their value. We see how wonderful they are and we value them so that we will start to care for them more and we will have more responsibility towards them and we will actually take actions to help them. But the second side of it, so that's one side. The second side of it is that we learn from animals. We can, our own life will be enhanced just simply by learning the many beautiful and wonderful things about animals. And one of the things that I notice about animals is that they operate more by happenstance, by chance. They don't think, I mean, not all the time, this is not always true, but at least when they're going around their daily business, they're open to different things happening and not necessarily um, governed by uh, plans, beforehand plans, but open to things as they emerge spontaneously. So animals live in the present very much. Again, animals do plan, don't get me wrong. They, they go on marches, they migrate, you know, they build nests, they do things, but there's a, a way in which they do that within a present. So I'm exploring that. But to be in the present is to be open to the aleatory. So the aleatory is what happens spontaneously and maybe outside of your game plan, but as it comes to you, you can make use of it and keep changing. It's kind of connects to what, you know, artists in the 20th century have been talking about with improvisation or spontaneity. Um, and and using that as a source of knowledge, as opposed to, again, thinking of everything in a very linear fashion and also in a very planning beforehand and then carrying out a plan rather than responding to things as they shift. And I feel that when you watch animals, they're masters of that. So I'm so interested in what you're saying about presence and improvisation. And yet you also talk in very deep ways about memory. And what's the relationship between memory and mindfulness and presence? Um, um, so it depends what you mean by the word memory. There's different kinds of memory. And this has been a discussion in Western philosophy a lot, memory like chronological memory of the past. And there's also another type of memory, which is more like embedded in our bodies. It does come from the past, but it's experienced in the present. It's not experienced as something that uh, we remember as past per se. And do you think animals have memory? Oh, absolutely. They have memory. I mean, of course. They have a huge amount. They know where they are. They recognize people all the time. They they know where they live. They have excellent memories, actually. Because um, I know, think about that with presence. You know, I, like I think, does my cat remember being on a plane and that that was torturous? I mean, I feel guilty about that, you know? Or are they so in the present that they've gone, moved beyond? I mean, I... I, I don't think it's, that they, they don't think it's that important. You know, once they're over it. So... What you remember and what you don't remember, first of all, we're talking about conscious memory versus bodily memory, and those are two different things. But what you remember depends on how attentive you are in the present, but also what's important to you. So, you know, I think that cats and animals, you know, they don't hold on to stuff obsessively the way we do. 
when it's not important. You know, when the plane trip's over, it's over. Okay, your cat may recognize when they, you go back again. In fact, you just, Terry Tempest Williams just traveled with her cat recently, which is why she's asking me this question uh, on a plane from one coast to another. But um, uh, they do have memory like that, but it's different than humans. It's different than humans, but they certainly go back to the same, you know, fish go to the same mating place every year. I mean, animals, you know, navigate the planet for God's sakes. They know far better than we do where things are. And I think about animals in the wild. You know, Doug yeah. talks about grizzlies and he is convinced through his studies when he was working on a fire lookout and the decades that he's known particular bears and he's convinced that they know him as well. Who's you know, that? Again, who? Doug Peacock, who oh, has oh, worked oh. on the grizzlies in Yellowstone and Montana. Mm -hmm. But I think about that, you know, in terms of what you're saying. And then your idea of memory and commemorating memory, commemoration of memory. Can mm -hmm. you talk about that a bit? in terms of animals, domestic and wild? I mean, that's a very deep and profound topic that I haven't thought so much about. I mean, I do think that when we see native peoples who are have totem animals and who are doing certain kinds of dances and rituals connecting with animals and animal totem figures, that's a kind of commemoration uh, which is a very beautiful and amazing thing. It's not something that we modern human beings do very much, but maybe we do with like our pets or so on. But if you're asking whether animals commemorate, um, you know, that uh, merges into the whole question of instinct. So there's so many fascinating issues with this whole thing. But, you know, that which has, is so embedded in our bones that we keep repeating it as a way of keeping it alive. Um, and um, and you know when a bird when a bird is singing a song and he keeps singing the same song over and over again, is that bird like commemorating uh, um, something that has been learned through their generations, or the sparrow in the boreal forests in Canada changing their song? You know, well, too what right. Are they adapting to what are they communicating? I wonder about that. Or I think about with Great Salt Lake now rivulet. Um, you know, 60% of what it once was, what are the birds communicating? You know, how are the birds commemorating that body of water um, now that they can no longer access it in the ways that they have? I mean, as you say, so many questions and I keep thinking, you know, when a thrush is singing between intervals of thunder, it, that feels like a conscious choice. <laughs> Again, as a writer with metaphor, you know, mm -hmm. I think, as you say, we have so much to learn from them. So yeah. much to learn. And we have to learn how to listen. We have to know how to be quiet. And we have these amazing people like Doug Peacock and quite a number of others and Barry Lopez, as as you know, and many others who have lived and 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 Barbara um, 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 uh, Smutkins. Um, and others who have, you know, lived with animals and observed them. But we're just at the very beginning of this science as, you know, but scientists are realizing how incredibly complex animals are and how much intelligence they have and intelligence that's very different than kinds of intelligence that we have. 
And I think of Carl Safina's work. And oh, yeah, absolutely. At all. Um, yeah. And I would encourage our listeners, you know, to really look at this literature because it's so rich. And as you have taught me, Janet, that as our compassion toward animals increases through your practices of attentiveness and presence and improvisation, our relationships with each other deepen. I hope so. <laughs> and I'm wondering, you know, how do these practice, these ideas connect with climate chaos and climate collapse? Why does this matter? How do these knit themselves together? Well, there, there's concrete ways that it connects to the extent that factory farming and the whole animal agricultural industry, which is horrendous and horrible and pathetic and, and a holocaust, is connected directly to climate change. So the way that we are treating animals today is, is directly connected to climate issues um, in many, many ways, much more than I can list right now. But I, so that's in one way. Um, and so there's just no argument about that. But I also think that as a way of a phenomenology of living, of the way we live on the planet, which should hopefully would be less greedy and less self-centered and more in tune with, you know, just to say in tune with nature and in tune with our place, our relative place and our relative importance means that we will be more responsible living on the planet just in general. So being aware of animals includes eventually being aware of the animal uh, plant life also and of the mineral life and these cycles and of course and and all the and our resources and 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 our use of resources and what human beings you know how human beings should be spending their time you know should we be spending our time going on a snow you know like on a on a moonshot you know in a in a rocket and or going across some snowfield in some motorized vehicle or should we be sitting quietly in our yards you know, passing our days, you know, kind of cultivating our relationship with the nature in, around us, you know, I think we're going to have to have really huge conversations about changing our lifestyle entirely. And I think that brings up our diet, you know, well, yeah. of that kind of commitment. And absolutely. And as you say, patterns die hard, you know, I mean, what kind of future do you envision? I see you as a visionary, um, okay. grounded in presence, as well as an understanding of past and future, <laughs> um, memory, um, and dreaming. What, what does your future look like with an aleatory <laughs> mind? Uh, you know, it depends on, am I being aspirational or am I being pessimistic? Um, I personally see really dark and deep troubles ahead for us. Um, but to the extent that communities will survive and ecosystems on the planet will survive, I would like to see a future where we live very locally and very much, you know, in a, some kind of mutually beneficial relationship with the animal life and the plant life around us. And that we use our modern science and our modern knowledge uh, as ways to think of really, you know, green and mutually, you know, um, dependent and beneficial ways of living. I see it very much in terms of small communities 
um, and where practices of animal husbandry and animal raising are very, very self-conscious, uh, how we relate with animals in the wild and what relationships we kind of maintain and, and what ways we're careful to make sure that there is a wild that, you know, that humans don't control every, every uh, piece of the surface of the planet and so on. So, um, so many conversations to be had about these things, I feel. And I feel like, you know, the accommodations we need to make for the wild creatures. You know, I know in the Tetons, there are certain areas now that are bear only, where Mm -hmm. humans have said, we know this is where they are, and we are honoring that, and therefore the trails are being closed. And I think, I think about what are these accommodations? Um, Also overpasses. Yeah. You know, what I hear from you tonight talking about is that this is a responsive world with responsive consciousness, what is it? Um, consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that your practices help us to be more present with the life around us. Is that fair to say? That's absolutely fair to say. That's fair to say. I hope so. Um, I, I do want to stress um, the issue of our consumption, as you just mentioned, with the food that we eat, the clothes that we wear, how we use animal products. And all of those things are very much all connected, absolutely. But it is based, and it is a very Buddhist idea, you know, that being located in the present where you're seeing what's really around you and looking, you know, without filters at the implications of what you're doing and what the impact is of what you're doing and taking responsibility for it uh, and being accountable are, are all very much you know, parts of the thing that I feel are important to cultivate. I'm trying to write about and trying to visualize what they look like. And that idea of practice, you know, I really appreciate that because it's both both aspirational, as you say, and difficult. And so I keep thinking these are practices, you know, practices of being present, practices of compassion, practices of, of being attentive to other species so that we can come back to our own with with a greater sense of fullness. Yeah, it's it, it's very difficult, but on the other hand, that's why I'm also suggesting that we make, um, that we pay lots of attention to the joy part of it mm-hmm. and the pleasure and the happiness too, of, you know, simply by making animal friends, you know, living with animals, I mean, having pets. And I actually, by the way, I feel that Americans in particular um, need to have better knowledge about how to take care of pets and, and how to allow the pets a certain amount of freedom of their own and autonomy and, uh, but live together with them and, um, and find ways that, you know, it's not just you kind of, um, you know, keeping this private pet, but you cultivating a relationship with other animal, uh, with another animal that you have a kind of somewhat of a reciprocal relationship and finding ways to do that. Uh, there's so much about pet keeping, which animals that people should have as pets and, you know, which they should not. There's another huge problem of people trying to get tigers and lions and all kinds of things in, you know, in, the, in their house. It's absolutely horrible um, and, and so on. You know, I was thinking about celebratory experiences with animals and we've had so much water, uh, rain in the desert just in this last month. Oh, really? I had been home for two months. I hardly recognized it. 
<laughs> and the first thing I noticed is that the meadow larks were rejoicing. I mean, the meadow larks were singing their songs of spring, which is so much ab about joy. And they're they're quieter in the summer with the heat. But it's like not only had the plants come alive, but so had the meadow larks come alive. Yep. And I had to believe that that they were paying attention to that shift. I'm sure. I'm sure they were. I love to hear that sound. I know. Um, Janet, I love you. I so appreciate what you have brought to us. And I'm so excited to bring Stephanie Paulsell to us now um, in terms of her response and also um, to deepen the conversation. For the past two years, what I want our audience to know is that Stephanie Paulsell served as the interim Pusey, Pusey minister at the Memorial Church during this historic, difficult liminal time, when her eloquent guidance touched each of us who sought her weekly wisdom from our homes. And it's my great pleasure and privilege to introduce to you, Stephanie, a woman I revere. She's the Susan Shalcross Schwartz, professor of the practice of Christian studies at the Harvard Divinity School and the faculty dean with her husband at Elliott House at Harvard College. She's a beloved professor who's Work focuses on religion and literature, Christian spirituality, and spiritually formative dimensions of the practices of reading and writing. She's a theologian who sees the world whole and holy. Her books include Religion Around Virginia Woolf, which I highly recommend, Goodness in the Literary Imagination, um, co-written with David Carasso and Mara Willard, Lamentations in the Song of Songs, Honoring the Body, Meditations on a Christian, Practice and the Scope of Our Art, the Vocation of the Theological Teacher. Stephanie, welcome. I can't wait to hear your response and to listen to both of you. Thank you so much, Terry, and thank you for these amazing evenings. Um, I look forward to each one of them. Um, and it's a real honor to be here with Janet Giazzo. Uh, we started teaching at HDS the very same year, 2001. Um, which was also a year of incredible change. And Janet has been uh, one of the biggest influences on how I understand what we're doing at HDS. Um, early on in our time um, at HDS, Janet gave a convocation talk that I still assign to students whenever I have the chance and reread it periodically. Um, in which she stood out under a tent on the Francis Avenue side of what is now Swartz Hall and spoke to us about a vision for the divinity school that was not yet, but that could be, um, in which um, Buddhist students and Christian students and Jewish students and Muslim students and Buddhist students, students from many different religious traditions, um, studied together not only the study of religion, but prepared for some kind of religious leadership together, prepared for ministry together. And uh, she's been a huge inspiration um, in, in thinking about how we um, educate future religious leaders at HDS um, to me and to many other people. Um, she came to us from Amherst College where she taught in area studies and she'd never had an MDiv student before. And she just got interested in it and began leading these wonderful seminars on, on ministry and Buddhism, which students flocked to, and not just Buddhist students, but, but many students from many different traditions flocked to these um, seminars. And out of them, the Buddhist ministry program developed, 
um, just from Janet's intellectual curiosity and her passion and commitment to it. And I feel like now she's on this new path um, of, of commitment and passion in relation to animals. And it's, it's just um, so inspiring and exciting to hear about. So it, it's an honor, Janet, to be in conversation with you tonight. The first thing I want to ask you is what's the book that you want to write on this? Uh, uh, you mean what's going to be in the book? Yeah. I don't have a title yet. I have it. So I have it uh, three chapters. The first chapter is about um, being with. So it's sort of a phenomenology of how animals be with each other. I'm very captivated by just the present, the idea when you know mammals or also birds, um, um, you know, stay close by each other. How they sit with each other. How animals just abide and live and be with each other and the whole category of being with another. Uh, I'm trying to um, unpack what's involved in that um, and both noticing it in animals and then um, cultivating it myself as well, what it means to for humans to be in that way as well. And the second chapter is really about ways of knowing is just what Terry was bringing up about memory and about how do animals know if they, you know, are there other kinds of knowledge than strictly speaking um, representational knowledge of the past? So that would be like historical knowledge or when you're actually talking about and representing the past as opposed to embodying it and trying to break down that difference. I mean, I'm the project is very much, I'll say, influenced by contemporary philosophers like people like Merleau-Ponty as one obvious example and others. But it's about ways of knowing. Uh, and it's about that aleatory way of knowing that Terry was talking about as well and different kinds of, of ways that knowledge may be um, both registered and then how we emotionally act on that knowledge. And then the third chapter, I'm trying to actually work out practices of it's kind of like a meditation practice, but it, you know, one very, um, I mean, it, it's not going to be instructions per se, but I will be talking about the principles of it. But you know, one very obvious thing that someone like me could do in my life is just spend, instead of sitting in meditation for a half an hour every morning, spend a half an hour just sitting with my cats, just following them around, not intervening or in, in, interfering, but just being with them and watching them. Oh, and, well, yeah. <laughs> and also using mantras. So that's um, so various kinds of practices and how they might work. Because I'm interested not only in developing this sort of sentiment, but also um, how to make it really have traction in our ethical commitments. Uh, yeah. What can I ask? What kind of mantras are they? And well, draw on more than human language. Well, I mean, the, the, the basic mantra would be the basic Buddhist mantra of compassion, Omani Padme Hum, which, you know, my Tibetan teachers, when I would take a walk with them, you know, so imagine me, you know, in my early 20s and an 80 year old teacher taking a walk and the teacher constantly, every time they would see a, a, a animal of some sort saying Omani Padme Hum, Omani Padme Hum, mm -hmm. which is the mantra of compassion. It's just the when you're Actually, there is a picture. So Navidra, can you 
show us that photo, that picture that we were going to do at the beginning. So the Bodhisattva of Compassion is Avalokiteshvara. And then there's also Tara. Is Navidra there? Maybe Navidra's not, not there. Anyway, never mind. But the audience will know about Tara or Avalokiteshvara. So mantras are already in existence, mantras of compassion. But one can also construct your own mantra in a certain sense of very pithy statements that you keep repeating to yourself or thinking to yourself. It's a little tricky to do that. So I, I think we should use the already established yeah. mantras, but mantra is a very powerful tool to focus and transform your mind. So yeah. you use it. Yeah. I, I was just wondering, because I've heard you talk to your cats and to my cats, um, the language, it's not quite the language, it's not the language that we speak to each other. And so I wondered if you were drawing on um, language, the language of animals for mantras. Well, okay. So Stephanie knows me personally very well. And a part that I have, I don't dare to talk with anybody about, but I have a whole way of talking to animals, which is getting more and more intense and weird the older that I get. Um, that's not the mantra, that's a different okay. thing. All right, just checking. Um, so you're talking about the second chapter, the ways of knowing. And one of the things that you know strikes me in seeing those wonderful videos and hearing you talk about them is that you're using your humanness to build a bridge to the animal, right? You, you also know what it feels like for spring to come and to be excited enough to jump. And so you see the cows jump and you think, okay, that's joy. Or, you know, you also have the experience of saying to a friend, come on, come on, follow yeah, me. Right, exactly. you your cat and you, you, you recognize that you see that. And I, I guess I have two, I mean, I, I love that. And I'm, I loved those videos and found them very convincing. I wonder if there are people who would say that that is a kind of speciesism, that it's um, it's a human reading of animals and what, just like what you say, what your response is to that. And, and secondly, I'm wondering what the bridge is to animals that are really not like us, like to a snake or a toad or, or something that's not, you know, not a mammal, not furry, not warm, not a, uh, whose expressions don't remind us of our expressions. Um, what what, how do we build the bridge to them? Yeah, well, the first, thank you, Stephanie. Those are both questions that have come up actually a lot in animal studies recently. And the first thing is, I don't actually agree that we're using our humanness to connect to the joy of the cow. Mm -hmm. I think when we connect to the joy of the cow, we're not being human. We're precisely being animals with the cow. Mm -hmm. We are connecting at a deeper and more uh, basic level that is not appropriately level, uh, labeled human. So the desire for warmth, the desire for sleep, the desire to play, the act of playing, uh, to eat, to stretch your limbs, um, to smell the air. These are all things that we do, that animals do, that when we do, not everything that we do is defined by, our, by humanness. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the speciesism is to claim that it is. And to refuse that I'm not, not everything about me is human. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's number one. And that's what my first chapter is about is all these things that we share deeply with an animals, you know, and are you, are you going to tell me that human warmth is different than cat warmth or human sleep? You know, yeah, of course our sleeping patterns are somewhat different, but I mean, you know, that's just, you know, splitting hairs kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
And again, you know, it's not that we know exactly what they're feeling. We also don't know exactly what each other are feeling. We're two human beings. If I have a twin sister, I don't know exactly what she's feeling. But then the second question um, of how do we connect to animals that are very different than us? So there's a famous essay by Thomas Nagel, uh, what is it like to be a bat? Mm. You know, but you could go further than it. So he was talking about echolocation and, you know, that's, they just hear, they, that's how they, instead of using their vision, they use a lot of echolocation. Turns out that, you know, human beings, actually, if you're blind, you use echolocation also, and it's something that you can develop. Um, and if you work on it, you can get a lot better at it. But, you know, an octopus, so this famous film of, you know, my teacher, the octopus, you know, I've been with Tibetan teachers where they look at a little shrimp so that you, if you have some movie of, you know, under the ocean and, and you see these little tiny shrimp or clams, a clam is swimming along and it's like beating, it's like it's two sides of its, the valves of its shell and, and some predator is chasing it. And you can see in the motion of those, of the shells, the way that it's clapping, that it's frightened and it's running away and it's trying to preserve its life. You know, that's, Dalai Lama teaches a lot about this. Everybody wants to stay alive. Everybody wants to be happy. You can, if you look at that clam, we have nothing in common with that, you know, guy, a clam, you know, but you can see it. You can see the fear. And I don't think that's projecting, you know, projecting to claim that it is, is, a, is, is, is indeed, a, is, is, it's a very cynical response. It's to say that we're trapped in our humanness. It's to decide the question in advance that no matter what we say, Oh, but I'm just a human, so obviously I just said it as a human. That's a that's a philosophical trap. Yeah, that I think we have to resist. Yeah, that's a great answer. I I um, yeah. To I think when I said you're building a bridge from your humanness, I guess I meant you're building a bridge from things that you recognize in yourself. Um, exactly. But that does not necessarily mean that it's defined by being human, which kind of leads me to my next question, which. You and Terry were just talking about the, the similarities between, you know, the kind of, of existence that you were calling for, which is going to require or would require a radical reordering of how we live and a transformation of ourselves. And, and so you are, you're reaching in that toward, you know, a powerful religious and philosophical tradition that has practices that are transformative that in, through which we can be transformed. And of course, the other place people go, humans go to be transformed is to education. And I was wondering how your study of animals and your commitment to these questions and to exploring them on this very phenomenological level um, how that has changed your understanding of what the humanities are and or what the humanities ought to be. Well, thank you for, that's a, such a wonderful question and I appreciate it very much. And it is true, I'm, I'm teach, I've been teaching this material, I'm presently teaching the third time that I've taught the class mm -hmm. on these issues. And I, I use a phrase that actually I have to credit Charles Halsey, who happens to be my husband, this term of educating the emotions, mm -hmm. which is a kind of education. Yeah. Um, and educating the attention, educating, um, you know, processes of reasoning, um, um, 
and education, educating our powers of vision, of seeing, of noticing, and of tying our moral, especially our moral emotions and our feeling, and indeed our feelings of love and compassion for others. Um, um, And I'll say that I'm even, you know, I started teaching this before the pandemic, but since the pandemic, it just feels to me that certainly in the study of religion, but I would say I would want it to be true for literature and for philosophy and for and history and all the humanities. We need to be paying attention to what's really, really important for this current mo- moment of you know profound crisis and and um, you know and danger. Um, and so that. Um, and so that humanities, well, all of the disciplines, all of uh, academia, but you asked me about the humanities, I think are obliged to direct their attention towards these matters. And I think in the humanities is, you know, you can just say it's to teach you how to be human, where my definition of how to be human is to learn how to appreciate also what's beyond the human and what who we're in companionship with who we're being with on the planet. Um, That's my phrase, being with, and we're being with animals um, and and how to do that better and how to learn how to be well with animals in ways that, you know, are going to satisfy our highest aspirations of what's good and what's happy and what's the best and things like that. Um, thank you. That's a really rich answer. Um, Terry had asked you if, if you, if I guess she, her question had been in Buddhism, is there a hierarchy between non-human animals and human animals? And you said there is, but there are also these other resources within Buddhism that could undercut that, um, could transform even that. And I'm wondering what, what about the, what about the rest of life, um, plant life and the life of the planet. And where does that fit in with human and non-human animals? You know, so this is not so much coming from Buddhism, which is doesn't have a tradition of thinking of plants as sentient, mm-hmm. although Jainism does. So Jainism is the major world religion that does think of plants and has a you know highly detailed idea about that. Mm-hmm. But um, it seems to me that modern science is very quickly, you know, there's enormous and amazing research that's happening about how plants communicate with each oh, other yeah. and how plants are attuned to what's going on in the planet. And it kind of looks like intelligence. I mean, it is very, a very, very different kind of intelligence. Those guys are alive and those guys are reaching for things and those guys, you know, and so it, it's, it's continuous. And as we know from modern science, you know, the line between plants and animals, just like the line between animals and humans, it's a porous line. So it absolutely connects with that as well. But, you know, if one generalizes something that one's doing too much, then it becomes too general and too vague. So, you know, I'd like to start with those creatures at the minimum who are closest to us. Yeah. You know, who who we recognize, you know, when we, we all love those cows, I, I think, you know, I, I know that not everybody loves those cows, but I think most people love those cows. You, you can't help but be happy when you see them, you know? Yeah. What about, 
the law. Is that part of your the what? The law. Oh yeah. Like, there have been right, there have been attempts to get legal protections for animals and especially animals that are, you know, that are understood to be the most like us, right? Um and is that part of your research and part of the project that you're working on? No, it's not, it's not what I'm working on. Although in my teaching, you know, I've been fortunate to have students from the law school take the class and there are at Harvard has an animal law program actually. And I've had some wonderful students and, and students um, who are in law very much want to, um, you know, draw on their own ethical and human resources in order to develop this. So I'm all in favor of it. It's just yeah. that it's, that's just not like my style. Um, so I'm not, but I think it certainly connects to that. And, and I'm hoping, you know, again, by cultivating our sensibilities, we will be uh, motivated to pass laws to protect uh, animals and, and such laws have been passing you know, it depends on which administration it is because they lift certain things against the industries and so on and so forth. But, you know, in Europe, they're far more advanced than we are in places like the UK is much more advanced than the United States in terms of animal protections and stuff like that. Uh, but still, um, yeah, it's, you know, that's one of the most important things. But, you know, again, the idea that we'll be motivated to, you know, to have those, you know, legal innovation will to to think them through and to make them happen and to fight the political fight that needs to be had and so on. It's complicated, you know, connected with the industry and again, and connected with people's consumption desires as well. And, you know, if indeed we would stop wearing fur coats and and stop and use vegan shoes and and you know, try to cut our meat consumption down dramatically, you know, and use plant-based protein and stuff like that, um, then it wouldn't be such a hard battle to protect animal rights, you know, from the legal perspective too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like you've been interested in, in this, these questions long before you started writing about them <laughs> and, and thinking about them. You've been interested in them for a long time. And I was wondering if there were any stories you could tell us of what, you know, were there moments where you thought, oh, I, this is a whole intellectual realm of study for me. This is a whole, this fits into the study of religion. It fits in the humanities. It's, it's, it, it, were there moments where you, where you had an experience where you thought, I, this is where my work has got to go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, you're right. So I've been thinking about the issues forever. I didn't realize I was thinking about them. It's just like, that's just the way my mind goes all the time. And, you know, I'm well known amongst my friends. Like if we're sitting around watching TV together and a commercial comes on and it's a little, a little baby and pampers and a mother, and there happens to be a little puppy in the film is, you know, I'll be, I'll start gushing over the puppy and totally ignore and don't even realize that there's a cute baby there as well. So, you know, that's just the way that I've been thinking all the time, but um, it's a good question. I don't know exactly how this started. I did have a couple of moments of revelation and um, a prophetic voice inside my head, which is something that has, happened to me at major crossroads in my life 
where somebody was telling me, Janet, you know, write, a, write this book. I want, you know, you do this. I felt at some, I know, I don't want to sound too woo-woo-y, but I did feel something like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's also at a t- point in life, you know, where, you know, I sort of feel like I've done most of my big, whatever professional stuff in my actual field that I was trained in. Um, and, uh, you know, okay, I've done what I'm supposed to do. And now I can do something that I really want to do. What do I really love? Uh, obvious answer, animals, you know, that's what I really love. So, Yeah. Well, that's what comes through, I think, is the, the love that's motivating this project. Thank you. I, I was thinking about in, in Christian practice, contemporary Christian practice, there, there seems to me an attempt to try to do what you're describing in some places to pay more attention to animals. And one of the places is to lift up St. Francis as, you know, and his um, feast day as a day to bring your animals with you to church and, and to um, have your animal blessed and, um, and to be blessed by the presence of all of our animal companions in the same room with us, in the sort of the ritual space with us. And it's, I've only been to a few of these services at First Church in Cambridge, but it is really, it is really perspective shifting to hear, you know, the minister refer to these animals as our companions and that they're here with us and they're with us in the space that we usually occupy as humans only. And, um, and it's really, it's, it's, uh, I don't know, it's like, I remember once when I was a kid, I, I lived on the edge of these woods and I remember, and, and there would sometimes be just these huge, like web um, hammocks almost with caterpillars growing in them. And I've, I've brought home some stalks of like little flowers once into my room and I put them in a jar. And, and when I woke up the next morning, there were caterpillars all over my bed. And it was, it was that similar kind of feeling of, oh, the, like some boundary has been crossed here, like the, the outside yeah. side. And, and, um, and I'm sitting in church with my dog or my cat and um, my cat was very ill-behaved. I'll just say in church, but, um, but I, I just wonder if there are other, I don't know, other boundaries that could be crossed that would, that would startle us into a new perspective. A new I'm sure I'll think of much more. I thank you for these wonderful questions, Stephanie. And, you know, when Terry asked me who should respond, you know, I knew Stephanie is definitely on my side with this, this whole <laughs> issue. And, you know, we know each other for a long time and I know Stephanie's a deep animal lover. Um, but um, uh, now I'm forgetting what I was going to say. Um, just lost my train of thought, but um I was asking about just the cross, you know, bringing animals into spaces oh. where we don't usually experience them or, you know, where we're not usually with them. Well, uh, yeah, Terry just mentioned, I mean, because of COVID, I t- took my class outside and I've been teaching this class outside and we're blessed at HDS with beautiful fall weather. And we also have beautiful grounds in front of the building where there's places for the students sit outside and we've been having class outside and because, so that we don't have to wear masks. And, um, and therefore I encouraged one of my students, who's this wonderful student who has a beautiful, wonderful dog 
to bring the dog to class and she only brought him once. So animals are not allowed inside the building, unfortunately. I mean, in the past 20 years ago, you could bring dogs to class. And I know professors who have done that. But it was so much fun. It was not a distraction. It was, I loved having that dog there. And I would break into dog language, like I'm lecturing, and all of a sudden I'd start addressing the dog as well. And I'd like to have like a bunch of dogs there um, or cats. You know, cats don't travel as in the same kind of way that it would be hard to bring a cat, you know, and stuff like that. But in the classroom, absolutely. Yeah. And um, I can tell one story of a great Buddhist teacher who I heard about who, Tibetan teacher who went to California. And this is a Tibetan teacher and one of their sort of styles of, of, of uh, ritual um, consecration that they do for students is a certain ritual in which they make certain sounds and, and it transforms your mental state. This is a very esoteric sort of Tibetan kind of ritual. But I heard that this teacher who was also a great animal lover, um, um, at one time instructed all the students to bring their dogs to the temple. And then he told the owners to go away. And so he had just a room with a whole bunch of barking dogs. And this teacher proceeded to give a teaching to the dogs. I wish I, I could have been there to see how the dogs uh, reacted. Um, but, you know, there's stories, you know, animals love the Buddha, you know, stories like that sort of thing. And um, so that's another space. I think the ritual, the religious space, I mean, I, I want animals with me all the time, you know, um, I, I want to be, you know, I want to have a comfort animal with me at all times. Uh, that would help me enormously get yeah. through my life. Yeah, yeah. Makes me think of Fran St. Francis preaching to the birds. Yes, yeah, absolutely. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And speaking with the wolf of Gubbio and asking him to please stop eating. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's lots of stories like that. And I, I, um, it happens. Yeah. Holy people do that. I mean, you yeah. do form relationships, you know, holy people are able to see and communicate with them, you know. Yeah. I, I know we're getting close to the time when I'm supposed to stop, but I, I, I am struck by um, the resource, you know, when you were talking about Buddhism and the resources within Buddhism for rethinking the hierarchy of humans and non-humans. And um, I think there are, thinking of Francis and other saints, um, there are these hidden resources within our traditions. And I thought I might just close with uh, two verses from a psalm, which I think is one of those hidden places um, in the Hebrew Bible, at least. Um, but as I've read this, I have read this passage over many, um, the ashes of many cats in my life. Um, but um, it's, it's a really beautiful passage. Anyway, I'll just read it. Uh, it's from Psalm 36. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your judgments are like the great deep. You save humans and animals alike, O Lord. And I wondered what if we really thought that, you know, the divine cares as much about the destiny of animals as the destiny of humans, what difference that would make. Um, so Janet, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. And Terry, thank you so much for inviting me. And Brian, thank you for the beautiful tea ceremony. Um, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Stephanie, for wonderful questions. Um, I really appreciate it very much. Thanks.
Thank you so much, Stephanie and Janet. I feel like we have been able to witness two powerful women over cups of tea. <laughs> being with Janet, being with Janet Giazzo is to be inspired and to bear witness to her advocating for practices rooted in Buddhism, the induce ethical traction, commemorations, cultivating compassion in a burning world, in a world of uncertainty and climbing chaos. Perhaps it's compassion that is one of the most important spiritual implications of climate change. Changing our habits of knowing, changing our habits of unknowing. And as Stephanie invites us to think about the importance of boundary crossing with other species, respectfully. Believing in a responsive universe as Mary Evelyn Tucker bows toward. I think about Henry Beston, a fellow New Englander who wrote this about animals in his book, The Outermost House. Quote, we need another and a wiser and perhaps a more mystical concept of animals. Remote from universal nature and living by complicated artifice, man in civilization surveys the creature through the glass of his knowledge and sees thereby a feather magnified and the whole image in distortion. We patronize them for their incompleteness, for their tragic fate for having taken form so far below ourselves. In a world older and more complete than ours, they move finished and complete, gifted with the extension of the senses we have lost or never attained, living by voices we shall never hear. They are not brethren. They are not underlings. They are other nations, caught with ourselves in the net of life and time, fellow prisoners of the splendor and travail of the earth." Unquote. Brian Kerbis in his tea ceremonies that frame these conversations reminds us that tea is help. Insights and practices into the help of our relationships with all beings, animals and each other, is one of the gifts of tonight's weather report. And the response from Janet Giazzo and Stephanie Paulsell, educating our emotions, seeing our noticing toward an ethical stance toward life. May we continue to cultivate our attention and a deeper responsibility toward our healthy and compassionate relationships with this beautiful broken world so that all life in its magnificent diversity will flourish. Thank you. Brian?
Sponsors, Harvard Divinity School, The Constellation Project, the Center for the Study of World Religions, Religion and Public Life, Theosophy Tees, and the Planetary Health Alliance. Copyright 2021, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.